This telephone conversation is recorded and may be monitored by department staff. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. And you guys already pretty much know anyway. I figured, you know, I'm living in a fantasy world, but not that I did that crime, you know. special edition of the 902 podcast, the official podcast of the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office in Lincoln, Nebraska. I'm Captain John Vick, and I want to thank you for listening. While many of our episodes highlight various units and people at LSO, this episode will be a little bit different. We want to take you inside a real case worked by real personnel from LSO and our partner agencies. Today's episode will discuss the disappearance of Melissa Schmidt and the subsequent investigation that followed. Some of what you are about to hear may be disturbing, and listener discretion is advised. Our hope with this and other true crime podcasts is to honor the victims and give a voice to their stories. We hope you'll enjoy this special episode of the 902 Podcast. Welcome to the 902 Podcast. We are here today for part two of a podcast that we started earlier on episode eight. Uh, we have Chief Deputy Ben Houchin here with us. Good afternoon. And we have former LPD Chief and former LSO Chief Deputy Jeff Blymeister here with us again. John, Ben, good to see you. Thanks for being back with us. And we also are joined via the Zoom line with uh, former LPD Sergeant Luke Wilkie. Luke, thanks for being with us on today's episode. It's my pleasure. It's good to see you guys. So the case that we're going to talk about today um, certainly relates back to Episode 8 and we'll, we'll get into the meat and potatoes of, of how that happened. But before we do that, Luke, I just wanted to give you a chance to let our listeners know a little bit about you, um, how you got started in law enforcement, and uh, some of your work with the police department, what you're up to now. I graduated from Kearney State back in 1989, and back then I pretty much had an idea that I wanted to be in law enforcement. And then when I got out of college, I went to the Police Department in Norfolk, Nebraska for three years, and then came down and worked in Lincoln starting in 1992. I spent most of my career on the Lincoln Police Department. I spent about half my career as a sergeant in the Central Investigations Unit, and then I left the Police Department in 2016. I went to work for the state of Nebraska doing insurance fraud investigations with the Department of Insurance. And then in 2019, I moved to Minnesota, and I work in the private sector. Awesome. So when it comes to the case that we're going to talk about today, I think, Luke, I'll just I'll let you set it up. Everybody was able to hear the, the recording um, at the beginning of this episode, and if they had a chance to listen to Episode 8, 
they'll know a little bit of, of where we're going on this. Uh, and, and if they haven't yet, I'd certainly encourage them to go and, and listen to uh, part one, which was the Andrew homicide. But why don't you take us back in time a little bit, Luke, to how, how we got started with this? All right. This case involves a girl named Melissa Ann Schmidt, and she was a Lincoln girl. She went to Lincoln East, and she is the oldest of four sisters. And she lived on the Southwest team at 12th and D Streets. On the Southwest corner, there was a great big house that was subdivided into apartments a long time ago. And I don't think that house is there anymore, because I think I drove by it one time when I was back in Lincoln, and I don't know if it burned or was tore down or what, but... I don't believe it's there anymore, but it was the southwest corner of 12th and D. And back in 1995, Melissa was reported as a runaway or missing person juvenile by her mother. Uh, her mother's name is, is Sherry Schmidt, and she's somebody that I'm in touch with to this day. She's a very nice lady. But she's reported, Melissa's reported as a runaway, and that occurred. The report was taken on... September 7, 1995, which would have been Labor Day weekend. And when we presented before off of PowerPoint, I have some pictures of the incident report. And you guys have talked in the other episode about how much technology changes. And this is just something kind of interesting. But the, the incident report, Ben Heskett took the call. He was a, a guy that's gone from the Lincoln Police Department now, but he was a he was a good guy, and the way this report looks, I would bet just about anything that he typed it up on an IBM Selectric typewriter in the old Lincoln General substation. So things have changed quite a bit. But Ben did all the stuff he was supposed to do. He did the incident report. He caused Melissa to be entered in NCIC, the state and national computer system, and local broadcast. One of the things, as Ben typed this out, that is probably going to be something we talk about later. And at the time, Melissa's 15. She's five feet, four inches tall, 110, brown hair, brown eyes. So Ben does everything he's supposed to do, and the active missing person juvenile investigation has begun. And then where she went missing from, her address there at 12th and D, it kind of makes a neat little triangle if you look at a map. You've got the state capitol, then the building that you guys are in, and just south of there, kind of in the middle, a few blocks, is where Melissa had lived. And again, this all took place in 1995. And time goes by, and the missing person juvenile case was worked by a number of different people. And I ended up, I'd worked in the Central Investigations Unit for about five years, and then I, I went back to uniform when I got promoted. And then after a little over a year of being in uniform as a sergeant, I went back into Central Investigations. And probably in about, I think I did my first reports in March of 2005 of this. So she's missing almost 10 years by this point. So that's when I got involved. And this was kind of a first for me in terms of a long-term missing person case. All the cops, all the deputies are going to be working missing person cases, but most people are found in, in fairly short order, and they're okay. But this one's a little bit different because she's been gone a long time. Now, when this is going on, I would have liked nothing better than to get a page to the service desk. Hey, there's a girl here named Melissa Schmidt. She says you're looking for her. That's kind of how we all wanted it to end. 
but at the same time, to do a good job for the case and do a good job for the family, you have to open yourself up to the idea that maybe this story does not have a happy ending. So, Luke, just real quick, LPD is set up in a lot of ways the same way that LSO is, but can you just talk for a minute on kind of the the structure of maybe a, a missing persons report or, or how that's handled, you know, when it comes in um, and, and kind of who's, who, who gets involved or who's assigned um, at looking for that. And then when you talk about central investigations and their role, how does it, how does it navigate the organization from intake to where it ends up on your desk? That's, that's a good question. I think maybe the most important thing to say is that there is no time limit for making a missing persons report. Nobody has to be missing 24 or 48 hours before they get reported missing. If somebody gets reported missing, they pick up the phone and they call the police. And when I work there, I'm hoping it's the same way. They send a unit out to take the report and the responding officer, cruiser officer is going to do an investigation and find out the particulars on this person. Where were they last seen? When were they last seen? What do they look like? You know, physical description, what's unique about them? Are they dependent on any medications, anything like that? Are there circumstances that would suggest this is foul play? Not every missing person case, you know, the majority of them are resolved promptly and the person's fine. But sometimes you need to be worried about, you know, was this person the victim of foul play? But the way the process works, they took it away from officers doing reports on paper and then later on the computer to where, as I recall, they were just phoning them into records and then records would do all of that for you. And then records would do a local broadcast. And what a broadcast is, is a person gets flagged in the computer, hey, this person's a missing person. And if they're found, the reporting party will be notified that they were found. If they're an adult, we can't make them go home if they don't want to. It's a little bit different with juveniles. But all of your missing persons are going to fall into the bin of missing person juvenile or missing person adult. And if they're missing person juvenile, they're going to go to, I think what they're calling it now is special victims. And an investigator will be assigned. If it's a missing person adult, they'll go into central investigations where I work. And again, an investigator will be assigned to that case to monitor it and work it. Central investigation where I work, the crimes that we investigated, we didn't do juvenile crimes. We didn't do, as a rule, we didn't do narcotics and we didn't do the technical financial crimes. So everything else, robberies, burglaries, sexual assaults with adult victims, homicides, missing persons, uh, arsons, gun crimes, things of that nature. It's, it's pretty broad and it was a good place to work because you're going to be doing a lot of different things and working on a lot of different types of cases. But the cases are always going to remain active on a missing person. There were cases that I worked on when I left LTD in 2016 that somebody else is assigned to now and they may have been assigned to somebody, several somebody else's depending on when people get promoted or rotate out or whatever. So. Other people had worked on Melissa's case prior to me. You know, Luke, I think it's worth for some of our listeners that might be hearing this in New York or California or something like that. Our our agencies, I mean, LPD is certainly bigger than the sheriff's office. Lincoln Police Department's bigger than the sheriff's office. 
for Nebraska, we're, we're both relatively large agencies. Uh, yes. But neither agency has a, a missing persons unit or a, or a task force or anything like that. I guess we're fortunate that we don't have such rampant missing person cases. So this is, is it fair to say that as far as, as even, even with, you know, family crimes previously to the special victims unit and central investigations, maybe Jeff, you can chime in on this, but they're missing persons is one of many things that they're, they're working on. Yeah, that's great perspective, John. Um, while there is a high volume and this is a very vulnerable population as Luke has alluded to, and that's why we want to do a timely, thorough investigation. Um, there wasn't dedicated staff that followed up on each and every missing persons case. That was the assignment of oftentimes the officer that would respond and take that call. But with this one, it has the inherent challenges of being belated by 10 years when Luke becomes involved. And, you know, as part of this podcast, because I've had an opportunity to listen to so many, you're talking about the importance of, hey, this is an impactful career. And I need to highlight this. I made a note as Luke was talking. What made one of many things that make Luke good at his job? He mentioned Sherry Schmidt, Melissa's mom. And to this day, he still has a relationship with Sherry. And that is a testament to Luke and his ability to build relationships and trust with uh, Melissa's mom. And undoubtedly, that contributed to so many facets of this investigation. And that's something that Luke should be proud of. And, and I, th I think that we'll hear that theme more and more as we go through this. Well, and she was really, really good to work with. And she is just a super nice lady. And when we got to know each other, and I've seen this in, in other cold cases, she wasn't vindictive about anything, but she wanted the case resolved and she wanted to know what happened to Melissa. And all of that is, is very, very reasonable. But I always like working with her because, you know, we're going through this fairly quickly because of time constraints. But there were a lot of, you know, kind of red herrings that were followed up on. There were times I took pictures to her. Hey, do you know this person? You know, because the person from this website or this other source had been identified by somebody calling in. Well, that's Melissa Schmidt. That's the girl you're looking for. Well, who better to know her or not know her than, than her mom? And I would take pictures to her. And just from my standpoint, she'd call it right away if it was or it wasn't. And I think there would be a big temptation to try and make, yeah, that, maybe that is. But she could, she could rule people out right away as far as not being a not being her daughter and she was patient with the process because we stayed in touch a lot we talked a lot and one of the things that jeff kind of mentioned you know if you're having a, a new homicide come in a lot of the other cases kind of get put on the shelf for a little while and you know there's a certain ebb and flow that's going on with this you know there was a time that you know in the passage of time, Melissa's case became all hands on deck for both agencies. If you were to list every cop, every LPD cop, or every deputy that had a piece of this, it'd be pretty much the rosters of both agencies back then. Sure. And uh, it's just, it's just one of those deals that she was, she was really good to work with. She did everything I ever asked her to do. And uh, yeah, she's, she's a you know, very, very nice lady with missing person cases, it's kind of a yin and, yin and a yang with found body cases. 
Jeff, your case with Andrew was a found body. And when we've presented on this in the past, I've des described your case as being a body with no name. Well, my case was a name with no body. And at the time that I was working on this, nothing occurred to me that these two cases were going to converge. But my issues that I've got to deal with in terms of trying to find her if she met with a bad end, you need to be able to match it up to a body that gets found maybe in another jurisdiction. So I'm thinking about fingerprints. She was a kid. She didn't have any fingerprints on file. Dental x-rays are huge. Um, DNA is big now. It may not have been when she went missing. And the, the other thing was just getting photographs of her. It's hard to work a missing person case if you're going to go out and talk to people hey, you remember this girl? Well, you better have a picture so you can you can show that around so they know what you're talking about. And then during this portion of the investigation, I didn't know what I was doing. I, it's all new to me, but I was put in touch with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. This is the organization that John Walsh set up. And they were really great to work with. And they provided a lot of services for cases like this. And they help people all over the country. The biggest thing for me was that they would enter known DNA from relatives into what's called CODIS. CODIS is a national DNA database, and it's got a component. It's, to me, and you guys tell me if, if you agree or disagree, but the function of CODIS is to clear crimes. But it's also got a component for matching bodies to surviving relatives. So I got DNA from Melissa's mom, and that got entered into CODIS. And it actually took a long time. Back in the day, I don't know how they do it now, but back in the day, those samples would get lined up for frequently months before they would get into CODIS. But eventually that got done. So we appreciated all of that help, and that would get checked with DNA taken from found bodies around the country. Another nice thing that National Center for Missing and Exploited Children did for us was that they would put posters on their website and you can see, as we're talking, a couple of those posters that came out. That first photograph of Melissa that I got was just a black and white photo. And I always wondered who took that. I don't think we ever knew. And then that next photo, that color photo, which kind of became her face as it related to this case, that I got from her uncle. And it was just taken from a snapshot of Melissa and a bunch of other people. And Jim Betts in the ID lab did all of photographic work. You did a good job with that. So that was real helpful. When you have a crime that you're trying to generate information on, the best thing you can do is introduce reward money into the situation. And I had heard about the Carolson Carrington Foundation from National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And they were willing to put up reward money for this, and they did put up reward money for Melissa's case. And they only had a few requirements, but one of the requirements was that the law enforcement agency had to have a press conference of a certain type. And that was done by Kanki Booker, who uh, was really, really good at interfacing with the media and just much more gifted in that area than what I ever would be. And the Carolson Carrington Foundation did not generate the leads that cleared this case, but I remember that because I think it was the very day or the day after that press conference, I had gone across the hall to talk to Jeff and Todd Duncan was the investigations captain, you know, the, the criminal captain, and 
the reason I went and talked to him, a couple of things. The Todd Baker prosecution was playing out, and like a lot of people in the community, my knowledge of this case was from what I saw in the media. And it had to be an extremely exciting case to work on. And, you know, Steve Evans and Jeff, you know, going down to Florida and all the things that they did. But I got to wondering because I remember when Andrew was found. And it was generally, I think, mid-90s. And Melissa's missing mid-90s. And, John, you mentioned a couple of pretty big law enforcement agencies. But back then, crime wasn't such that it wasn't super far-fetched to think that this guy that did this horrible thing to Ann True may have had other victims. So I went and talked with Jeff and with Todd. And Jeff, I don't know if you remember this or not. I don't know if Todd remembers it, but I remember going home that night. I'd been working on this case for a couple of years by that time and telling my wife, I didn't tell her case details, but I said, I, I think we finally have a breakthrough in this case I've been working. And it kind of went that way. I think the, the crux of this whole podcast that we're doing is talking about law enforcement cooperation. And I guess I'd like to speak to that for a minute. People that don't work in law enforcement are probably saying, don't you guys cooperate on everything because it's the right thing to do. And that would be correct. But I remember times, and Jeff, I bet you do too, when you've got a suspect and a whole boatload of burglaries and you know he's active in another jurisdiction, and you call that other jurisdiction, hey, let's work together on this, and you get, well, yeah, well, why don't you send me all of your information, and I'll get back to you kind of thing. And to me, that isn't the hallmark of cooperation. But when I went and talked to you and Todd, I just remember, I mean, it was, it was a team from then on, and everybody was pulling the same way to get Melissa found because it was important, it was the right thing to do. But, you know, what we have with that relationship between the police department and the sheriff's department, you don't have that everywhere. But you guys have always been such good neighbors. I say you guys is in the sheriff's office. If you fast forward years after both of these cases, I had a little more involvement in missing person cases. I don't know how many times I interrupted an LSO lineup to beg for help on looking for somebody. I was never turned away. You know, um, your guys... Your supervisors, your deputies were always so good about jumping in, taking all the information I'd give them, and being, you know, how much do you expand the search for somebody when you can take all these deputies that are all over the county, you know? And they're just good cops, so yeah. And I'm kind of getting off topic here, but after I went and talked to you that day, Jeff, that's when things started to gel on our case. And... Jeff, in your podcast, you talked about Angela. You want to talk about her again? You bet. And I, I do recall those conversations from, you know, a decade ago, more yeah. than that, I guess now, <laughs> a lot more. And um, when we were first discussing, we were talking about how many efforts had been made when Angie Hecox first came forward in 2004 to find this other identified, unidentified remains that she had seen in, in 1995. And, and, and so when Luke came and he started to talk about Melissa Schmidt and the timing of her disappearance, that's really when, you know what, 
there, there was so many things that were leading us to believe that these could be related. And um, we were fortunate at the time because Todd was in custody. And we had the opportunity to try to further corroborate what Angie Hecox had said in 2004 and 2005 and try to, to begin the search process to begin to find for some closure to Sherry or to whomever this person was. And so we, we, uh, we reviewed the details that had been provided by Angela and the extensive efforts that had been made by Investigator Eppins and Ben Houchin and so many others at the time to find this body but were unsuccessful. And so then things just continued to play out. Um, and Luke, I think that's where really you begin to work so closely with all of us and investigator uh, Phil Lang at the time was intimately involved in this. And we, we began to, to explore investigative options that were pretty extensive. I'll let you go back into that. What I knew about your case, like I said, you hear stuff around the courthouse, but I'm probably getting most of my information from the media, and and it was it was a very exciting case as it played out. I didn't know that you guys were looking for another set of remains until we talked that day, but it's always been open door between the two agencies. It's literally across the hall, and then we find that out, and the timing is really significant. You guys made the introduction with Angela, and Angela is a very nice lady, and I think it took a lot of courage for her to come forward. And when you and I would present on this in different academic environments, I would refer to this as the template. This is essentially the map to find that other set of remains that I believe might be Melissa. So I like Angela a lot. I like Angela because Angela's world is made up of north, south, east, and west. You know, other people, their rights and lefts. But Angela was really good to work with. But what she told us, go west out of Lincoln on a paved road that turned to gravel. You're going to turn south, and the remains are going to be in the west ditch of a road that ran north and south. The road had a gravel surface at least in 1995 when she saw the remains it did. Farm field on the west side of the road, uh, trees on the east side of the road, and it's somewhere south and west of Lincoln. Now, I remember Phil Lang and I, going out into the county with her. And, you know, we looked where the witness told us to look. And Phil was really helpful because Phil had been a deputy for a long time at that time. I knew Lincoln really well, but when you get out into the rural part, Phil was an expert. I mean, he knew what roads were paved when and all that. And Phil, was just, Phil and I worked on some other cases together. He's, he was a fun guy to work with, but he had really good knowledge about the roads and you take this template of angela's you know go west out of town paved road turns to gravel turns south trees in the east edge farm field in the west edge that's where this body is supposed to be well angela really likes southwest 56 south of van dorn and if you go out there Jeff, you're aware uh, there are five or six really good spots that absolutely match what Angela said. And the body's not found out there, 
it's found further west, I'm skipping ahead, but we looked where she told us to look, you know, and in retrospect, maybe, you know, things could have been done differently, but she was pretty adamant that it wasn't as far west as what we found it. But remind me again, back to Angela Hecox. So she, she comes up during the, the Todd Baker and Ann True case. And this is unbeknownst to you really at the time, other than maybe hearing about it then through talking to LSO, but Angela recalls another trip that Todd took her to in the county and showed her is, am am I remembering that right, Jeff? Yes. Yeah. Yep. You are actually, because even when she first came forward with Sergeant Norm Cobb to Steve Evans and to Ben, she recounted two individualized events. One was these remains that she saw in this ditch in 1995 that Luke has been walking us through. And the second was the abduction and eventual murder of Anne True. And yeah, she wasn't there on the first one that the remains was, she just saw the remains. She did not see the murder occur like she did with Anne True. So with you, Luke, she's kind of recalling, you know, north, south, east, west from this trip that Todd Baker had taken her on once upon a time. But she's reaching back 10 plus years to try and, and, and so yeah. you're, you're constructively trying to piece together this, this search grid, essentially the search area from, a 10 year old memory of Angela Hecox. Yeah. But her, her memory was good. And, you know, she's somebody that is really vital to both cases, but she around Christmas time of 1995, completely independent of Ann true. She had purportedly been taken to a set of human remains out in the County. And that set of human remains, the working hypothesis amongst all of us by this time is that it, it, Whoever it is, it's somebody we need to find, if it exists. But the timing, I'm thinking it could very well be Melissa Schmidt. And I really wanted, we all really wanted to get this case resolved for her family, um, one way or the other. Like I said, you know, the best thing in the world would be if she, if Melissa Schmidt had showed up at the service desk in life, you know, wanting to talk to the police because we were looking for her. But by this long after the time she had been missing there's no activity on her social security number or anything like that so yeah we're thinking that this other body very well could be melissa and if it's not melissa it's somebody else that we need to find when and this is playing out over months but when we're looking for the set of human remains i'm working with a guy named john beck and john was a local guy that had cadaver dogs i talked to him a few days ago and told them that we were going to be doing this because I had met John, I didn't know him well, but I met him in connection with some other cases where he had been looking for human remains with his cadaver dog. And he's had different dogs as time went by. His dog at that time was named Iva. And the thing about John, he was really, really a good guy to work with. He's another guy I've been fortunate to stay in touch with over the years. John would never take a dime for any of his time. I was looking back through, you know, notes and the PowerPoint and all that. John spent an awful lot of time with his dogs helping me look for this body. We went out a lot. And it was also kind of unexplored territory from the standpoint that if this person that we're seeking out in the county that Angela had seen, if this is to be Melissa, it's 10 years post-mortem. And nobody really knew if a dog would hit, if a, cat, a cadaver dog would hit on old bone cases like this or not. 
So we're kind of doing this as we go. And then John was actually the president of the North American Search Dog Network, which I'd never heard of until I got involved in this. And over the months that we're looking for this other body, you know, a certain amount of, you know, impatience or frustration sets in because, you know, we all want to find this. And then John told me that the North American Search Dog Network, the search dogs from all of North America are coming to South Bend, Nebraska for their national convention. And I'm thinking this is great because we're going to have a lot of dogs, you know, grid off the southwestern portion of the county. We're all going to look. We're going to, we'll make a day of it. And then, you know, hopefully we would succeed and find this other person that, and whoever it is, somebody's looking for this other person. And that kind of came off the rails because Hurricane Katrina intervened. If you want a challenging career, a career where you can make a difference in your life, your family's life, and the lives of those in your community, come and join the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office. To learn more or to apply, visit us online at www.joinlso.com. And Hurricane Katrina strikes the Gulf Coast. They canceled the convention for the North American Search Dog Network because all those dogs were going to do important work in New Orleans. And I ended up with John Beck, of course, lives locally, but there was another lady named Mary McCormick, and she had a canine partner named Ellie. And Mary McCormick and Ellie, Mary actually lives in Minnesota, I guess, and she and her canine partner came down and worked with John Beck and me doing some searches. And I, John, I don't know if you were in law enforcement by this time or not, but Ben, you and Jeff will remember this because probably both you guys were there. But these two cadaver dogs indicated on a spot on Southwest 56 in the West Ditch. And the dogs indicated, and they indicated, you know, pretty strongly. And my understanding is that soil from that site, John did some blind tests and, and other dogs hit on that soil. A lot of other dogs hit on that soil. And I remember asking Mary McCormick, what does this mean? What, what is your dog telling you? And she told me, she says, Somebody's, somebody is either buried there or was buried there. And we ended up doing this really big excavation. I mean, it was an entire day. And we're looking, we're looking, we're looking, you know, all of the forensic stuff, you know, being very careful with it. Long story short, nothing is found, you know, and law enforcement is a pretty good calling. It's a very good career. But if you're going to tie up a bunch of highly specialized people all day, and it was a hot day, as I recall, and you find nothing, you may end up taking a little bit of ribbing over that. But everybody was a good sport about it. But we had this big excavation and we didn't find anything we didn't find anything at all and time goes by you know by this time this is we're probably about oh i don't know after 
Jeff and Todd Duncan and I had that talk. This is sometime down the road. This is this is probably months later. But Baker ends up getting convicted in September of 2006 for the murder of Ann True, and he gets a life sentence. And back then, if you were convicted, whatever county you were sent to, you got taken to DNE, which was the prison out on West Van Dorn, diagnostic and evaluation, and then you got designated from there. But Baker's out of DNE, and then I remember Jeff called me at home one night. Uh, I think it was a Saturday night, and it was snowing. It was it was there was a blizzard going on, but Jeff told me that Baker was talking on a recorded line from the prison about another body, and kind of expressing a desire to get this cleared up. We're now going to play for you the audio of the jail phone call that Luke Wilkie is referencing. This is the same audio that we played back in episode eight with the Ann True episode, but you can listen to it now in the context of Melissa Schmidt's disappearance. This telephone conversation is recorded and may be monitored by department staff. Thank you for using Global Tell Link. Well, yeah, we I pushed the wrong button. Oh, what's going on? Oh, I just had to call you. Tell you. you had to, huh? <laughs> no, yeah, I just had to. Because I uh, wanted to tell you that, uh, you know, I believe in God and everything, right? And I, um, uh, had to confess my sins in order to make it to my salvation. You guys already pretty much know anyway. I figured, you know, I'm living in a fantasy world, if not, that I did that crime, you know. Angela made it. Did you what? I did that, did the crime. Angela made it. Wouldn't you want that if that was you, your child out there? 
We'll pick the story back up with Luke Wilkie talking about their next investigative steps after learning of that phone call on that snowy night in January. So obviously we're going to be real receptive with that. Jeremy Schwartz did a lot of work on that that night, talking with the different correctional people. And he did he did a really good job. I mean, he. I, I, I want to mention some of the LSO guys that I work with, and I know I'm going to miss somebody. But like Schwartz, he did a lot more than just that. But that's the thing that sticks out in my mind. But the the quote that I remember on this recorded phone call, he said, "There's another one out there, and I have to clear that up too." So I think it was the next night. I interviewed Baker at DNE, and this was done with really generous assistance from Norm Cobb with, he was a sergeant with York PD. And I want to say, I hope Norm listens to this because we would not be having this conversation. You wouldn't have had the other podcast were it not for Norm Cobb, I don't think. Norm had cultivated relationships with people and Norm, I mean, I met this guy and 20 minutes later, we're in, in a prison talking to, you know, hoping to have a conversation with Baker. Norm is a good guy. Norm is a genuine guy. And you want to talk about somebody that, that cooperates. And, and he, I think both of these cases in the beginning pivoted on him. But Norm was with me. We went and we talked to Baker at DNE. As you guys are aware, custody plus interrogation equals Miranda. And we had both of that. He's clearly in custody. I wanted to ask him questions. So Baker waved Miranda. And this was probably one of the most unusual interviews or the most unusual interview of my law enforcement career. But Baker just started telling me what he knew. He talked about attacking a young female, but he didn't know her name. And he described her as being a young girl, probably 16 or 17 years old. And she was sitting on the stoop of her apartment building. And I had mentioned this before, looking at Ben Heskett's what they called an ACI, his ACI for broadcast. Right. So it's it's kind of a, a smaller supplemental report that we use to document follow-up information. Yeah. yeah. And then what Ben had documented on his ACI, what Baker's telling me now, 10 years later, he's giving me the same physical description, essentially, you know, 100 pounds, maybe 105, maybe 5'2". So he is describing this person uh, that he attacked and during this interview, he promised that he would take us to the body. And I'm all for that. Uh, that's really what I want. But I'm asking him to tell me where the body's at that night. You know, when you're working something like this, it can be something that's kind of high stakes. And you want to maybe do belt and suspenders, if you know what I mean. But I wanted him to tell me where the body was, not just show me the next day, just in case something happened to him. Or maybe the guy's going to change his mind. But he declined to reveal the exact location of that body. But he did tell me, yeah, this is the body that I showed Angela. And then what was interesting was that, you know, we had that first dig site that I mentioned north of West Clare. We get all the cops out there. We're digging. We're doing all this forensic stuff. Uh, we didn't find anything. 
So I'm thinking this is the spot that Angela had been taken to, but the body got moved after that. Baker's like, no, it's, the body is in the same per place where Angela had seen it around Christmas in 1995. The body never got moved. He said that the remains were placed in a road ditch and not buried. And, you know, when you're working an investigation, you always hear things, and sometimes the things you're told aren't accurate. And I'm thinking, how could anybody be in one of those road ditches and not be found by a letter carrier, people out hunting, or whatever? But he said that the body was placed in a road ditch and never buried. And one of the things that he said was that this is somebody's child who needs to come home, and I understand that now. So that night that we're talking, I would say that Todd was very cooperative and Todd was very helpful. And we're looking for the body, but I also want to know if this is Melissa Schmidt or not. So I'm asking him, where did you get this girl from? And he said that it had probably been around 14th or 15th Street south of the Capitol. And he said it was a big house that was subdivided, and the house was located on the corner of the intersection. Now, he's a little bit off, you know, a couple blocks to the west is where Melissa lived, but everything he's telling me is consistent with that being Melissa Schmidt's house. So, and I think I even showed him a picture of Melissa during that interview, and he couldn't say one way or the other if that was the girl or not. But as we're talking, he goes into some of the things that he was saying were very unusual things. I mean, this is a, I haven't had an interview like this since, and I think I could have worked in law enforcement decades longer and never had another interview like this. But he talked about being what he called on the hunt when this attack took place with this person that we would eventually find out the county. And... He said some things that I think were beyond my ability to understand because I didn't have the psychology background, but he talked about going into the hunter's mode, and he, he talked about it's a prey thing. And when he was saying prey, he means P-R-E-Y, not prey, P-R-A-Y. So that was, that was a very unusual interview. And getting to know Baker, it was, it was a a different conversation than anybody than that what I'd ever had with anybody else. If I remember right, and I again I I think I heard this presentation once upon a time, but wasn't there also a piece where he talked about seeing encountering other people, other hunters that were out there or you know, around this time or something to that effect, Jeff? Am I remembering that? Yeah. That's that's true. Uh, he indicated during this interview that he had been on the hunt one time. And he felt that he had run into another man that was in a similar mode that he was. Like it, it triggered some sort of instinct in him that these guys could, could recognize each other. But yeah, he, he believed he had run into another person that was on the hunt and looking for victims just the same way he had. Wow. Yeah, that was that was another interesting, interesting deal in that interview. But as we're talking in this interview, and the interview was recorded, yeah, we're all getting old. But the interview was recorded on, I had a standard cassette player and also a micro cassette. And, you know, technology is way different now. But when I was talking to Baker during that interview, he indicated that he had approached this girl sitting on the steps of the building. And he didn't know her. And he said that he had a claw hammer that was concealed in his hand. 
and that was significant because that was the same sort of weapon that was used on Ann True. And then Baker told me that he had struck this girl one time in the back of the head and that he had moved her into a dark area. And when he had been talking before, he was using some figurative language, but I think this was literal that it just, it was a place with no street lights. And he ended up telling me that he had struck the victim again with this hammer. And then he then went to get his car, which was parked nearby. And then he placed this female victim in his car. And from there, he went out to a rural area of Lancaster County where the body was, was dumped. And it was at this point in the interview that I, I showed him the photographs I had of Melissa and he couldn't say for certain that this was the girl he attacked. Yeah, Luke, you know, uh, whenever anybody's struck in the head, a lot of time there's a lot of blood evidence. Did uh, um, did he say anything about cleaning up or doing any of that at the scene? Because it sounds like the way he's describing it, it would have been at her residence where this occurred. And so I was just wondering if uh, he talked about that part because I would assume she would have bled someplace in that area that somebody could have found it or, or, or seen it. And I don't recall Melissa's mom mentioning finding anything like that. And I don't know that Todd and I spoke to that specific issue at that time. I know he told me later, and then we're going to get into this in a little more detail, but there was a car that he had, a Chrysler Newport, and he indicated that there would be a lot of evidence in that car. And skipping ahead a little bit again, Baker was eventually taken out of custody to help us find this set of remains. And I remember him commenting about one of the car washes on either him or Angela, but I think it was Baker commenting about one of the car washes on on West A being a place where the, the car was cleaned out. So, but the, the next portion of the story, you know, we get this interview that night, Norm Cobb and me, and it's just, it's, it's one of those nights that I'll never forget, but at the same time, we still don't have the body that we're looking for, and he won't tell me where it's at, and the other thing I remember is we're getting a lot of snow that night or the night before, there's like six or eight inches of snow on the ground, so fast forward into the next day, and this is when this this is one of the things that Jeff did, and I don't know that we have ever spent a lot of time talking about how you did it, but you were able to obtain cooperation from the Nebraska Department of Corrections for Baker to be removed from custody the next day. Yeah, so, yeah, so, we did. Uh, so Jeff, yeah, that's that's a guy who's a convicted murderer that you were able to arrange to have removed from custody to assist law enforcement. Well, then you'd have to be a little concerned because if he's not saying where it's at, what is his game plan at that point in time? And what, is, you know, yeah. is this his chance, sure. his true chance to get away? Well, you, you know, you, you see exactly. that in movies and you hear about it. So how, do, how does that happen in real life, Jeff? And so I, I was present that night with Norm and, and Luke out yeah, at, yeah. at the DNE, and I was in the background and we were attempting to, to listen into the interview itself and the technology like you explained Luke didn't work as effectively as it would today but as soon as Todd who was willing to participate in that search and we took um, 
it on face value that that's really what he wanted to do. He did not want to attempt to escape mm. from custody, but we took extreme caution in how he was going to be escorted, how he's going to be transported, including um, air coverage of the the transport. And, and so, yeah, I worked effectively at that time with leadership from DNE to get that done. Um, looking back on it and then some of the things that we had done, we'd probably done it a little bit different today, but it, it worked out. It so. didn't work. And the one thing I would say about this and also about your guys' trip to Florida at the very beginning of all of this is, Jeff, you're always good at doing things on the fly, and you're better at that than I was. And you know, I'm getting kind of tunnel vision at this stage of my investigation because I think it might be coming to a close. But, yeah, it, was, it worked out really, really well what you did. And then in the light of day on that next day after we did that interview, Todd's taken out. And I remember, I think we're in the back of Angelo's cruiser, and I was sitting in the back with, with Todd, and Todd focuses the search area much further west than what Angela did. And we can't find it. We can't, there are a lot of places that we went and we looked, probably several hours looking. And there's a lot of snow on the ground, and we can't find this body, but he did change things up compared to what Angela had done. But we knew that we probably should be looking further west. So when he's not able to find the set of remains, Baker gave me a second recorded statement regarding, you know, what had happened. I had some additional questions after I thought about it. And then we all went out. And when I say he was in the back of Angela's car, there were many, many sheriff's office vehicles. You know, the, the, the whole security thing was paramount. And that worked out well because when, at the end of the day, he was returned to DNE without incident. But he couldn't find this body site at all. And, he, and you know, he's continuing to cooperate. But, okay, if you can't find the body, tell me where you took this person from. So we went into the residential south of the police station there and then south of where LSO is, south of the city county building. And he pointed out two residences that looked like they could be close. He didn't remember, but one of the two residences he liked for the site of this attack was that house at 12th and D where Melissa lived with her mom. Wow. So we got a lot more actionable information now than what we had, you know, a week earlier. So we engaged Angela again, as I remember, and then we started doing some checks. And Jeff, I remember it was you and me and Todd Duncan. Jim Baird was there for a while. And I'm going back to the template, you know, um, go west out of Lincoln on a paved road that turns to gravel, turn south. The remains are going to be in the west ditch of a gravel road that ran north and south. Trees on the east side, farm field on the west side. But we focused the search area a lot further west than what Angela had said. And we ended up on Southwest 112th. And we had checked a lot of sites that day. You know, I mean, it wasn't like we drove to it or anything like that. But I remember being on Southwest 112th, just south of Van Dorn. And then we get out. And we get out at one of these sites that you can find 
trees on the east farm field on the west. And you had, I don't know, probably 80 acres that drained to this one spot on the west. And we looked down at the mouth of the culvert there, and there's, there's still snow on the ground, um, quite a bit of snow on the ground. But we see kind of this mossy mass at the mouth of the culvert. And I think one of the things that I'm probably going to remember until the day I die was when Todd Duncan said that there was a bone sticking out of it. Hey, I'm Captain John Vick with the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office. When it comes to your career, don't settle for good enough. Don't settle for ordinary. We won't either. Be different, be better, be exceptional. Start your future today at joinlso.com. day we've got what's now another crime scene on southwest 112 and we've got two different chains of command because you guys had yours and i had mine being with the police department we're all calling our bosses to let them know hey this we've had a significant finding in this and then i think we did some kind of redundant stuff because you guys had experts that you work with and the pd had experts they work with that would come out and say if bones were of human origin or not. And I think throughout our careers, all of us have had times when somebody will, you know, find cow bones or deer bones or something and say, hey, are these human? I'm not smart enough to tell that generally, uh, but we have experts that we rely on. But we, we called our respective ex experts, and then on that day, that day was January 26, 2007, on that day, the remains, some human remains were found. We knew that. We knew that the bones were human, of human origin. But now we've opened up this huge logistical can of worms for both agencies because if you have this crime, it's not like everybody can go into town and call it a night. This scene needs to be guarded, and you need to start making plans to recover all of this evidence. And it went kind of crazy from there. I remember Assistant Chief Sean coming out. I think he was still AC then. He ended up being Chief of Police, of course. But And uh, there were a lot of people out there. And that scene was locked down. We took that road for days. And just scrolling through pictures here, you know, the pictures are kind of telling for all the help that we got from people. I loved working in Lincoln and Lancaster County because you always got so much help from people. I think it was a retired Captain Alberg. Doug Alberg went to emergency management. He got tents for the road so people could, you know, warm up when they're working in this scene. And, you know, it was an unusual crime scene from the standpoint. It's out in the country. People want to use the road. We can't let them use the road. You know, we, we took the road for several days. And then we did these searches with our joint LPD and LSO crime scene units. And then we got help from... Um, some names that you you guys will recognize, and I, I wouldn't forget, but Dr. Melissa Carter, Connor, Dr. Melissa Carter, Carl Reinhardt, David Carter from UNL, and Dr. Akoya, who's doing the autopsies then. And what 
was obtained after this first crime scene search, this mossy mass was taken out and it was put in a, I think it was a baby pool and taken to Dr. Akoya's lab to thaw out. And at some point in time, they got into this, I was referred to it as this big mossy mass, but it was, it was basically a big clod and they were able to take it apart and they found a lot more bones and there it was a largely intact human skeleton that we found. And shout out to a couple of people then, you know, all the crime scene techs worked on this. You had city cops and you had deputies 24 hours a day are guarding this scene. Larry Barksdale was the, he was a sergeant by unit. He was kind of the, the crime scene guru and that he, he really knew a great, great deal about all the crime scene stuff and had an extensive network of contacts. And Erin Sims as well, she was a sergeant with our agency that had a background in skeletal remains. But this skeleton is removed and we still don't know who it is. And Jeff, we didn't know who it was for weeks to come yet. And the skeleton is examined by different forensic experts. And I just want to mention, you know, what they found. Dr. Reinhardt identified it as being a skeleton of a female and said it was somebody probably 14 to 17 years of age and put the height as being about five, six and a half plus or minus a little bit. And that's consistent with Melissa Schmidt. So we're not, we're not finding somebody that's obviously not her. And I would say too, during the course of this post-mortem examination on these bones, blunt force and sharp force trauma was indicated and that was the cause of death. Um, another guy, and I think that came from Dr. Akoya primarily, but also Dr. Reinhardt. But Dr. John Philippi is another guy that I'd had a lot of background with over the years, probably starting with this case. He's a forensic dentist, and we've found skeletal remains before. And John Philippi is able, if you, get, if you give him dental records, he can match it in a matter of seconds. The problem with this case is, is I never found any dentals on Melissa at all, and a lot of time was spent looking, but never found anything. But based on his examination, we knew this person was a, about 14 or 15 years of age. And then Tim Huntington's another familiar name. He is a forensic entomologist. He's a bug guy, and he's also got a pretty considerable background with Seward County Sheriff's Office now. and. I mean, not as a forensic scientist, but as a as a deputy and an investigator. But he was able to tell us that based on the insect evidence that this person had died when the outside temperatures were 50 degrees or greater, but he couldn't tell us what year because of the post-mortem interval was so great. But the daily temperature exceeding 50 degrees, September in Nebraska, Labor Day, yeah, that's that's for sure. And then Dr. Akoya did the pretty much the, the overarching analysis of the remains, and he identified blunt force and sharp force trauma and ruled the death a homicide. So all of these experts have given their observations. I guess they're more than opinions, and we still need to get this person identified. Dentals are out because I never found dentals on Melissa. Fingerprints are not indicated in this case because of the postmortem interval. So we're left with DNA. And Ben and Jeff, you remember back in the days when we started getting DNA tests 
you'd have to triage it a little bit because the cost was so great. And that didn't necessarily play into things in this case, but we needed to get DNA from the teeth and have it compared to the known DNA of Melissa's mom. And Jeff, you remember we made several tries at that, and there were issues with contamination. I think you and I went up to the lab at UNMC a few times, and John Philippi brought his expertise in uh, with the extraction of the teeth. And what we ultimately ended up with, and this, keep in mind, these remains were first found on January 26, 2007. It wasn't until like two months later in late March that we had a DNA match. And it was done by the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha. And what what they said was that, you know, they had a long way of saying that this is, this is female offspring of Sherry Schmidt. Well, she has four daughters. Melissa has three younger sisters. Those other three are accounted for. One is not. So, you know, you can infer, and the numbers were 99.88% likelihood. And, you know, with all of the other evidence we had, the age of this person and just all the circumstances with the interview of Baker, I think you can take 99 point and then run a row of as many nines as you want to after that. And, you know, it's, I think it's a medical and scientific and legal certainty that this is Melissa Schmidt by this point in time. So we're able to contact her family and break that news to Melissa's mom initially. And I remember that, and that was kind of a sad day, but at the same time, you know, you hope people can get through their grieving process then. But with that work being done, the case is by no means over with at this point in time. And then, Jeff, you and I worked a lot on this, and this is another thing where I kind of, you know, rode your coattails on, if you will, but we're looking for this car that Todd Baker had, and it's a 1979 Chrysler Newport. And what he had told me is that, yeah, there's evidence in the car. So in, in law enforcement, I think especially with the Lincoln Police Department and the way the Lancaster Sheriff's Office does things, you want to make the absolute best case you can make. So we want, you know, we want the, the, the every forensic angle looked at, but we want to find this car. And Jeff, you had done a lot of work on locating the Newport. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, you're right, Luke. Um, we are always trying to anticipate what defense strategies there might be and uh, just put hurdles in between that, um, knowing full well that Todd Baker was culpable for this. And, and so we did extensive searches of looking for this Newport, which we knew um, the VIN number of, but we knew it had been towed, um, but we did not know um, where it was. And so the best that we could ever come up with is that it was towed off the street in Beatrice in the year 2000. Um, we had speculated based upon interviews with people back then that it either had been crushed or been uh, turned into a demolition derby car. But I vividly remember, Luke, many trips to southwest um, Nebraska searching um, lots for Chrysler Newports. And uh, yeah. 
Those two were unsuccessful, and it was very similar to the efforts that had been made earlier on when Angie Heacox first came forward when we were looking for Todd Baker's Monte Carlo. Mm -hmm. And neither time did we find him, but again, we exhausted those investigative avenues. I remember you, Jeff, and I, and several other people went to that really large salvage yard down south of Beatrice. And I think we came up with several new ports. This place is huge. We came up with several new ports that day, but none of them was the right one. And when we put it out in the media, we were looking for this car. We got we had a lot of people calling in. And the one thing I would say is if the podcast does make people call in, the VIN ended at 155-658. And if that isn't the last six of the VIN, the card wouldn't have any meaning. I don't know if it has any meaning now. We're going fast forward a little bit. It's 2007, end of January, Melissa's remains get found. They're not known to be Melissa's until pretty close to the end of March of 2007. And Baker is in state custody and he's remaining in state custody, but we still have the Melissa Schmidt case to be dealt with. And then Jeff, you were there that day, but it was in September of 2000 and seven that Baker was brought back to the courthouse in Lincoln and he was and this is all in one court hearing and I think cops may realize how unusual this is I guess this happens on TV from time to time but in the real world this is never going to happen but it happened in this one particular instance but in September of 2007 Baker gets brought back and he gets arraigned for first-degree murder in connection with Melissa's murder. Arraigned, he pleads guilty at the same, he pleads guilty at his arraignment, which doesn't happen with murders, and they immediately, the court immediately sentences him to a second term of life imprisonment that's consecutive to the and true sentence. So essentially he's doing back-to-back -back life, and then I looked on the corrections website last night, he's still confined to Tecumseh. So that is where he will live out his life. And then there were some appeals after that that were unsuccessful. And I guess you would say at that point in time, the Melissa Schmidt case was resolved as much as it could be. And, you know, we've talked about a lot of people during our talk today, but I, I would like to say that, you know, my feelings on all of this is that, you know, the important person here is Melissa. Melissa Ann Schmidt, she's born March 28, 1980. She was born in a family of people that loved her, and she died on or about September 5th, 1995. And uh, she was a member of our community. She went to Lincoln East. You know, my nephews went to Lincoln East. You know, this is this is something that happened in 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 our city, in our county. So I don't think this case, I know this case never would have been resolved without you guys clearing up the Andrew homicide. And again, that was that was one of the most fascinating things I've ever seen play out is that case. And, you know, you guys, when I say you guys, I mean, LSO was so good about partnering and helping and making the resolution of the Melissa Schmidt case possible. And I wish, 
you know, like I said, not every not every place has that level of cooperation, but we always did, and I hope that's something as times change that the two agencies always have that. But I guess I always felt indebted to you, Jeff, and to Todd, and to everybody else on LSO that made this possible because it, it truly is a cast of thousands. There were so many people. Who, we have breezed through this case so quickly today talking, and there were so many people that did so many different things, you know, that I, I know I'm not anywhere close to recognizing everybody, but it all worked out, and it worked out because of you guys at LSO being really, really, really good neighbors. Without him showing Angie Hecox and then taking her along, did he ever talk about that? Because um, I have a hard time probably thinking these were the only two, too. And uh, I was just always wondering why he ended up, especially showing Melissa uh, to her. Um, did he ever talk about that? I don't know that he did outside of that interview that I did with him. He was never a suspect in Melissa's disappearance until Jeff and Todd Duncan and I sat down and talked about it that one day. And were it not for Angela being taken to that site, we never would have found, we, we never would have found her remains. We never would have found Melissa's remains. And this case I think would be open to this day. They went through that portion where she was found and they did a whole bunch of dirt work and I don't know that that big mossy mass would have been anything other than something that got bulldozed away. I mean, I don't know for sure, but getting the cooperation we got from Norm Cobb's ability to, to make relationships with people, were it not for all that, I don't think this case would have been cleared. Well, and, certainly, and True wouldn't have never been cleared. I mean, we would have never known at that point in time unless she came forward. Yeah, I think it, Luke, to Ben's point, it's important to go back and look at that timeline because we know that September of 1995, Melissa Schmidt is abducted and murdered by Todd. Then we fast forward into 1996 when Ann True is abducted and murdered. And that one, that Angie Hecox was present. But then we go a year later. And we know in 1997, there was the attempted abduction and sexual assault of an individual at Coddington and West Day. And, and other than those brief, too. what's that? And, and she came forward, too. She did. Like yes. you mentioned in yours. And there was good work done in that because, you know, somebody took the time to do a composite. And the, the composite was always kind of wacky technology for me. And I, I never put a lot of stock in that. But that was why that kind of won the day. Yeah. It's just hard to believe an individual like that could just, they don't just stop. The only way they stop is when they get caught. And he's, he'd gone a long time until 04 when you guys are finally doing it. And it's just, it's really hard to believe there's not more out there. And I know he's lived in different states and things of that nature too, but he seemed to okay. have clammed up just at those. If I could speak to that. I think, I know what you're saying, Ben, and Jim Baird with your agency did a really intensive timeline, and I think, Jeff, you and I both talked to law enforcement agencies in other states, and, you know, we had this and wanted to make it available to them if it's something they could use. 
I can tell you that I've heard people say to me, well, Baker, if he did those two, he must have done this other one. I don't know that he did any others in Lincoln and Lancaster County. But to your point, Ben, yeah, I agree with what you're saying. It would be very unusual for somebody to have these two homicides and this other attempted abduction that Jeff mentioned and have nothing else for the rest of their life. Well, with that, Luke, I just want to thank you again for joining us today and, and sharing your perspective on this case. You as well, Jeff. Um, again, it it really takes a team to make these things come together. Uh, and, and ultimately, you know, we're able to provide hopefully some some resolution uh, to the family, but but all in the all in the spirit of trying to keep our our community safe. And uh, it's it, it, it takes everybody to make that happen. So Jeff and I have presented on these cases a number of times. And every time we've done it, Jeff has gone out of his way to recognize the law enforcement authorities in Florida, primarily Belusia County. And they were great to him. But I got more help from Lancaster County on my case from from LSL. And, you know, it's just one of those things where everybody lined up, everything lined up really, really well with the cooperation. And like I said, Jeff is always quick to give other people credit, you know, Volusia County especially, but I got really the same assistance from Lancaster County. And it was just one of those deals where everybody, it was always, it was always about the case and resolving the case. Well, thanks so much, Luke, and, and we appreciate that. Um, but just a, a very tragic case, but a very interesting case, too, and, and one that hopefully we can, as, as law enforcement, um, but also as members of the public, can, can learn from and uh, something we hope never happens again. Yeah, you know, you're talking about uh, both agencies working together. We're going to be having uh, Assistant Chief uh, Brian Jackson come on and kind of talk about that and our relationships in one of these podcasts coming up so that the community can kind of see exactly how the bang for the buck that they're getting because of our relationship and our willingness to work together and doing all that. Absolutely. Great thing to highlight. And, uh, you know, listening to this and, and, and seeing the talents that um, everybody involved in this particular case contributed. Who wouldn't want, who would not want to be part of this profession, right? Mm -hmm. You can make a difference just as what, uh, I know you're trying to use this as a recruiting platform and I hope people are listening and, and know that they can. Yep. Absolutely. Jeff, Luke, thank you guys both so much for being here. Appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed listening to this special true crime edition of the 902 podcast. We'll be uploading supplemental materials and photos from this case on our Facebook page, which you can find by searching at LSO Nebraska. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe and follow to catch future episodes and updates from the 902 podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. If you're interested in learning more about careers at the Lancaster County Sheriff's Office, visit us at joinlso.com. We hope to have you join us on a future episode of the 902 podcast. Thanks for listening.